Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Truth-telling isn't about knocking down statues. It's not about blanking out mistakes and saying, that's wrong, we don't teach kids that story anymore. It is about a, developing a fuller picture of how the nation got to where we are. Truth-telling in journalism, in conversation with Lorena Allen. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. January 26 is a day that continues to stir up debate and conversation about our shared past as we consider how to best mark our National Day. In recent years, more and more Australians seem to be taking an interest in learning about the complex relationship between Aboriginal people and European settlers at the time of colonisation. There's also been an effort to better understand the intergenerational impacts of this history and ways to ensure the continuation of Indigenous culture, language and community. Lorena Allum is the Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia. She has spent over 30 years as a journalist at the ABC and won three Walkley Awards for her work. She has just received a Churchill Scholarship to study the relationship between truth-telling and journalism. Importantly, she's also a Uwalarai and Gamilaroi woman, my countrywoman and my cousin. Lorena, let's start with where it all began. Where did you grow up and where did you get your interest in telling stories from? So I grew up between... Uh, the West and the South Coast, which is where my mother's family are from. Um, And my family was spread across Sydney, the South Coast and uh, the Far West. So, but I grew up by the sea. So I kind of had the best of both worlds, really. And my interest in storytelling came from listening to all of those uncles and aunties telling the best stories. Because, you know, when our mob, especially that older generation, would get together, they would tell stories and yarn and laugh. There's so many jokes and, and funny tales told, tall tales and just mob sitting around yarning. Um, so I didn't think a career in journalism was possible for me and I didn't even think about that. I was good at English at school um, and I had uh, a teacher's assistant, the Aboriginal teacher's aide for our area said, you know, you should think about turning that into a career. And, um, yeah, that's how I got a start. She literally put me in her car. I was in year 10, I think. And she drove me, year 11, and she drove me out to Bathurst to what was then called Mitchell College, now Charles Sturt University, uh, and said to the the journalism lecturer there, Mr Roger Patching, another ABC veteran, you should put this girl in your course. And he said, why? And I and I had to, you know, do a bit of a performance and they agreed to, to let me enrol and that was the start of it. That's amazing. It's I love those stories about the teacher who uh, saw your potential that we never saw because w- were you the first in your family to go to university? Yes, I was the first to finish high school, you know, so it was just not, it was not something that I thought was possible. And if it wasn't for her, I mean, I thank her just about every day for her determination to see me succeed because she really did go the extra mile and um, I think about her a lot. You mentioned the influence that family and storytelling had but as you've sort of progressed through 
your studies and through your kind of early life, were there particular political figures or members of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community that were kind of influential in your thinking, people that you looked up to? Um, I looked up to Gary Foley. I looked up to um, the mob from the 10 Embassy, definitely, Uncle Chica Dixon, um, Isabel Coe. That generation of leaders was just incredible to me. They were brave and fearless and um, uh, people like Solly Belair who, who made it possible for our generation to do things, to, to envisage the next steps. Like by, the, by their struggles, we had land councils, medical services, we had uh, legal representation. So all their hard work and agitation created benefits for us. I mean, there were people who were fighting people like Bonnie Robertson and others in the education sector who were fighting hard for us to be accepted into universities. So they were the people that I idolised, you know, um, and I felt like they made huge sacrifices to enable these changes to happen and and I was one of the beneficiaries of that sacrifice and so I felt like, I, I really felt like it was a an opportunity not to waste and to, to kind of give something back in a way. You entered journalism at a time when there weren't other blackfellas doing journalism. What was it like for you in that realm? We had very few First Nations people on television. Mm. Um, we're, we're similar ages, so we would have seen or not seen the same things on TV it wasn't a medium where we had any visibility. What was it like mm. for you going into that as a profession? I didn't imagine that it was going to... I, there was no career path, as you say. There was no one... There was no welcoming committee. Uh, when I, I applied for a cadetship at the ABC in 1988, 89, and at that time the federal government was offering funds to the ABC to employ Aboriginal cadets. So the ABC had federal funding to conduct this employment campaign. And there was a big cohort of us. Like I wasn't alone in the sense that there was a big influx of Indigenous employees around that time. So when I came in, I came in with people like uh, Ursula Raymond and Aaron Ross, uh, Joel Wright and Wayne Coolwell. In TV was Mullendary McCarthy, Michelle White, Rachel Perkins was here, David Sandy. There was a big, strong cohort in TV who came in as TV reporters and producers and presenters. And in radio, where I got my start in the newsroom, there was a big uh, influx, or there was a significant influx of Indigenous employees around the country, including Karen Little, actually, who, who she and I were cadets together at the start of things. And so we were, but we were all spread out around the country. So there was very, every, every year we would get together as Indigenous staff and um, we're all quite young we were learning how a big bureaucracy operated. We were new to that bureaucracy. They were new to us. They didn't quite know what to do with us and vice versa. Um, so it was it was a big experiment back then. Uh, a lot of people didn't get through. And I, I think the environment was really tough, particularly in newsrooms where they, as I say, they didn't know what to do with us. You um, obviously stayed here for at the ABC for 30 years. What was it as you developed your craft that you started to love about journalism? I loved, well, I had some great opportunities at the ABC. I worked in news uh, and I worked in um, regional radio as well. And I saw how hard people worked, the camaraderie of that. 
um, this, the, the huge number of skills you got, you know, the expectation that you would do a bit of everything. So it was exciting to be able to build skills. Um, there were lots of different places you could go in the ABC to work and to do different things. After that, I went to Triple J and I loved that. I was a young person at Triple J. I felt like I was living the dream. It was it was a great experience <laughs> to work there and work in current affairs with some fantastic people. And then I I left the ABC to help organise a big Indigenous youth conference in Darwin in 1993. Now I'm really telling you how old I am. I came back to the ABC in 94 and joined Radio National at that point. Um, so what I loved about radio in particular was the immediacy of the storytelling um, and the ability that I had to sort of prop the door open for, for mob to come in. So a lot of I, I took very seriously that that um, uh, access that I had. And so one of the things I learned soon uh, was that we could bring in many indigenous voices to this place that the part of my role was to to try and kind of shake the structure a little bit to make sure that indigenous people were given um, their rightful say on not just matters ma- relating to indigenous people, but when you know journos would go out and do vox pops about you know the federal budget or a, a raise in interest rates that we would say well you could t- talk to like a broad cross-section of the community, talk to this person, talk to that person. Um, and and a bunch of us were also active in developing, setting up programs at the ABC that were dedicated programs for Indigenous um, issues. So we created, we had Speaking Out first and then Away, the Indigenous Arts and Culture Show on RN, um, came in 93. So you know, there was a lot of different uh, ways that we were trying to, you know, shake the system a little bit to make it more accessible for, for Aboriginal people. And I could see not just the power of storytelling, but the the access that 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 working at the ABC gave us that we shouldn't take for granted and, and, and sort of saw, tried to find ways to make the door a bit wider, if you know what I mean. When you look back at what you set up and you still see programs, like Away is still going, Speaking Out is still going, how do you feel about that legacy? I'm very proud of that and I'm very proud of the people who took it on as well because it was not ever easy. The perennial issue for those programs, the challenge they face is staffing and continuity and succession planning. So and also the fate you face the scrutiny of the rest of the ABC. So I remember very early on with Away, when we started Away, RN management would say to us, you sure you've got enough for an hour's worth of broadcasting about Aboriginal art? Like, really? Is there enough uh, content for an hour a week? And that really was the prevailing attitude. Um, when, whenever we had a staff shortage, they would say, oh, we can always axe the program. That was never, ever an option. And so we stayed and we fought to keep that space open because I think we knew that if we walked away, the door would close. And I have this kind of this half-baked theory of displacement when it comes to diversity in big institutions, which is that it's like when you sit in the bath and you displace the water, when you get out, the water level returns to its original level. And, and that happens so much in big institutions when Indigenous people or people of colour come in to, to, to sort of to create some diversity. 
you have to make sure that there's always someone coming through behind you. That's a really fundamental part and that those people understand the challenges that they will face. So when I look at those programs, I'm enormously proud of the people that have worked on them, the skills and the, the, the talent they have brought to those jobs, the beautiful programming that they make, because I know now that it's so valuable to the ABC. You know, when some of our iconic performers pass away, it's, it's the Away and Speaking Out archive people go to for those crucial interviews because, you know, we have been the chroniclers of our mob for over 25 years now and there's a, that archive is, is um, priceless. It's interesting to hear you say uh, about how much you had to fight to keep both programs because I've been here for a much shorter time than you were here and I have also heard that question asked in the ABC about why do we have two Indigenous programs, which is a reflection of the fact that while a lot of things have changed, some things have stayed the same. And I was wondering from your perspective when you look back now at the at the profession uh, and we have so many more uh, First Nations journalists. We've got NITV. We've got more platforms. We've got podcasting, so people don't have to be at a national broadcaster. We've got all these changes. So, when you look back, what are some of the things that you think are still some of the real hurdles that we've we've got to overcome? I think that uh, the non-public broadcasters still have a very long way to go to to more accurately reflect. Uh, Indigenous views and issues. Uh, we just aren't visible on, with the exception of our, our sister girl, Brooke Boney there, um, we are not visible on commercial TV as much. And Narelda Jacobs, my apologies to Narelda, you know. So apart from those fabulous women, that visibility is still quite poor. And I think that the the, the Australian media still does not get us, still either misunderstands or misinterprets willfully or otherwise our issues. And so there is still a long way to go to, to change the prevailing mindset and, and to kind of, you know, diversify newsrooms. That is still a massive problem. Um, even the most well-meaning progressive newsrooms are struggling to get it right. But as you say, there's been, there are so many Indigenous journalists now and working media professionals across all platforms. I mean, we just had Mundanara Bales launch Blackcast in Queensland. So there's an independent podcasting collective now. So, and, and Indigenous X is still going. So we, you know, we are much more visible. There's a lot of different ways that you can now have a career in the media. But I think that and of course, we can't we can't not celebrate our um, community radio people because that's the bedrock of our media. Like our mob talking to each other in language is is just fundamental, and that needs more support. Fundamentally, they need a huge injection of resources and 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 support infrastructure. You know, to because that's in my view is an essential service. But um, the media is still pretty toxic for us, and um that still has to change. There is that element that's hard about your job. There's also the element that when you do a lot of your reporting, it must feel very personal. And I'm thinking about some of the very significant uh, pieces of work that you've done just in recent times, um, all the work on the massacre map, uh, the recent work that you did on possible grave sites at Kinchula Boys, um, reporting that you did with 
uh, Sarah Collard, which also had a Western Australian aspect to it. Um, it. It must be an additional layer when this is your mob. There's no objectivity. And I was wondering, how do you navigate that aspect? If the idea of being a journalist is to be objective, um, how do you play that line? It makes your it makes your journalism richer that you have that understanding and that insight and those connections. But how do you navigate that as a journalist? Mm. This issue of objectivity is really a bit old-fashioned because if if you look at what is an objective journalist, what does an objective journalist look like? Is it a white middle-class person who's had a very nice upbringing with uh, good education uh, and a somewhat limited uh, access to Indigenous people? Is that an objective journalist? Is, is it, what's the default setting? If it's, if it's a white person, a white male middle-class person, then how is that objective? There's lots of different ways to do journalism, but fundamentally, if you're telling, if you're reporting, you need to stick to the facts, right? You need to provide that information to people. So, for example, with the Kinchilla Boys' Home uh, reporting we worked very hard to make sure that the reporting we did was about that particular issue of the potential discovery of possible clandestine burials. We were very clear that that they were possible, that there were other possibilities to consider, the other people involved in the story. We we chose to, to report that very carefully and responsibly. But accompanying that, we provided explainers for people about what the stolen generations are who they are, what's the history of, you know, uh, of, of the stolen generation. So we're providing context as well. We also explained the the technology that enabled uh, the surveyors to find these anomalies. What's ground penetrating radar? What does it do? How often is it used in these sorts of situations? Um, and we also told the oral histories as they were told to us by the survivors of that home. So, um, what what my personal connection to that story provided was access to we we went and sat with the uncles at the home for two days we just sat down with them and they talked to us we laid out to them really clearly this is what we're doing this is the context in which you will appear and I think in the way that we try very hard to be trauma-informed about that. We're not journos coming in and with the the thinking of objectivity is you come in, you, you take the story away and then you write it and then, you know, you publish. We consulted with the survivors because they are people who were entrusting us with a very personal story um, and needed to and deserved to know what we were going to do with that with that information and the context in which it was provided. So that's how I try and do my journalism. It's it's so interesting to me to hear you say that because it's similar in academia where there's this faux idea that somehow there's an objectivity as if if you're not Indigenous, you can look at an Indigenous issue and somehow you're not connected to it. When, of, of course, it's a history that everyone's invested in, right? Mm. And actually, it's it seems so alien to our culture because our whole worldview is about connection, how we're connected to each other and stories. And I think that's something that you bring into your journalism is actually that sense of how we're all connected makes what you do even stronger. And it also strikes me that it, 
it probably is reflected in the sorts of things that stories that you've really dedicated yourself to, which are, you know, really in that truth telling area of people getting a chance to tell stories that have often been sometimes literally buried, but have, you know, not had space for. And I was just wondering, um, I know I've asked you this in other interviews, but I really want to dig into this a little bit more. Why you have, if you can explain where that deep passion for not just journalism, but truth telling comes from. Just to go back to the previous point, I wanted to add too that, that access, you know, being an Indigenous journalist means you might have uh, connections to people that make it, you know, they know you. So they go, oh, yeah, you're so-and-so's cousin or you're so-and-so's your auntie. Yeah, I'll talk to you. So there is that, there's, a, there's an assumed trust there. But, but what I really want to make the point is that makes you responsible. It doesn't mean it's easier for you. It means you have another layer of responsibility in your job to do the right thing. So one of the challenges Indigenous journos face all the time that isn't acknowledged by the rest of our industry is that we are responsible to, we have kind of two bosses. We have we have the work which we have to produce that has to, you know, uh, you know aim for the highest quality, but also we have the responsibility to our communities that they are happy that we have done the right thing. So that doesn't make your jobs easier. It makes it actually adds another layer of, of um, com- complexity to what we're doing. Why is truth-telling important? Because um, I think I've been a student of history. I've always loved learning about history. And when I was growing up, the history I got at home was so at odds with the history I got at school and then at university. And I'm thinking, hang on, you know, there's the history of our family and how how um, the experience they had growing up of this system. And then there's the, what the system was telling me uh, it was doing. And in the middle, I thought, well, there's something, something's wrong here. And when I started to learn about the principles of journalism and how to report the news, I realised that was my, that was a tool that I could use to explore that disconnect between what I was hearing at home and what, what was being told to me in the, in, out in the world. That's journalist Lorena Allen. She's speaking with me about the importance of telling Indigenous stories and the challenges often faced by First Nations people in the media. In 2018, she decided to take on a new role as Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia. Her groundbreaking and award-winning work, The Killing Times, gave us an insight into a confronting but important period in our history. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABCRN, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, more from my conversation with Lorena Allen as we reflect on the importance of First Nations people in the media. Right now, though, some music from Coloured Stone.
That's Coloured Stone with Magic Girl. Lorena Allam has been working as a journalist since the late 1980s. She's covered some of the most significant issues and key moments in Indigenous affairs. And while at the ABC, she worked on many programs such as Away, Earshot and Background Briefing. She was also responsible for the establishment of the Indigenous Radio Unit. In her time outside journalism, she worked on the landmark bringing them home inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. Lorena was recently awarded a Churchill Fellowship to study the relationship between truth-telling and journalism. The issue is particularly important this week as we mark our National Day on January 26. What's the importance for the country, especially thinking about everything you saw while you were covering last year's referendum. Has it shifted or deepened your thinking on how important truth-telling is as a national project? It has, because I think a lot of, a lot of the, the conversations that were about us were based on wrong ideas. I mean, the whole point of the voice to parliament was to give people, Aboriginal people, the right to speak on their own issues and be heard and be uh, and have those views reflected fairly, right? That that in a way is what we do in the media. Why truth telling has become even more fundamental was because people who voted weren't really given enough during the campaign. I mean, they didn't have enough understanding of why this mattered and why it was important that, that Aboriginal people had self-determination. When, when you kind of roll out to people, well, we want this, they'll go, oh, but not like that, you know. Uh, so I think the truth-telling is where we can reconcile those two seemingly opposite points of view because if you give people some information about history and you help them understand how we got here, the think my thinking is, and I, maybe I'm just powered by hope and, and, and it's a foolish hope, but you give them the information and then they start to understand where we're coming from. I mean, I don't think it does any harm fundamentally, even as, even at its most basic. Telling people the truth of our history does no harm. All, your work is, is focused on truth-telling with our mob telling their stories. But I was interested last year at the South by Southwest conference, you did an interview or a one-on-one with David Marr and his book, Killing for Country. And I was wondering, obviously that's a very powerful account of his family and their role in the colonisation of Australia, a very unflinching one. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what what your reflections are in terms of what process non-Indigenous people should be playing in truth-telling. David Marr's book is a good example of... Um, the work that can be done by non-Indigenous Australians in owning this history. I can't say that it was easy for him to do. I'm sure he found it enormously challenging. It's I, a hard read It too. is a very hard read and particularly for Indigenous people to read. The one thing that Mar is good at is, is presenting a very unflinching look at that history. He does not shy away. And I think he made that decision very early on that if he was going to explore this his family's relationship to the history of the native police in Queensland, he was going to do it warts and all, and he certainly does that. Um, and it's it's a hard read. It, yeah, it's it's hard. But then this history is hard. You know, people survived that. People didn't survive that. Um, but it happened and we have to face it. For non-Indigenous people to, to start to do this work is really, really important, particularly, you know, there's... 
anyone whose family goes back more than two or three generations in this country will find some connection to this history somewhere. And it's not about blame. It's not about guilt. It's not even about retribution or reparations. It's about just facing it. We need to face it. We can't we can't continue to pretend it didn't happen. And I'd like to see in my lifetime some more substantial moves towards facing that without, as I say, guilt or blame, because we're all living here. We all have inherited this this history. And so it's up to all of us to, to kind of, you know, take a look at it. Uh, so truth telling is, you know, this idea of us telling our history is an, is an old concept to us, but the concept of truth telling as a phrase is something that's, I guess, become a fairly recent um, part of our agenda. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you see the difference between truth telling and journalism? Mm. What does truth telling really mean? Well, truth truth telling and journalism, journalism has to involve telling the truth and involve the reporting of facts and objective information um, and explaining to people how we got to a place. So, for example, in, in the Ukraine, we'd, you know, explanatory journalism would give people the history of the conflict, but also the context in which the, the conflict began. So that's the role of journalism. Truth-telling is, it can mean a, a lot of different things, but truth-telling is a a process or a series of processes that allows uh, groups of people to talk about their experiences of history, to look back at the prevailing narrative about colonisation of Australia and at the times when the story is incomplete and trying to fill in the picture. So truth-telling doesn't supplant the history we have. Truth-telling isn't about knocking down statues. It's not about blanking out mistakes and saying, that's wrong, we don't teach kids that story anymore. It is about developing a fuller picture of how the nation got to where we are. And that development isn't isn't just about big formal processes where you have a bank of experts listening to people like a Nuremberg style trial or a or a, a truth and reconciliation commission South African style where you know you give people impunity and they come and confess to crimes that's not just about that it can be about very interpersonal um, simple things acknowledgement of uh, family involvement in an incident in your local area. For example, there's a, I won't name names, but there's a farming family in Victoria who've lived on the land for generations who have become aware of the true details of massacres that happened on a creek on their property and have become, have talked to local traditional owners about that involvement and come to an understanding of how they might move forward together in acknowledging that. Um, those are the tr- those kind of interpersonal truth-telling processes are as important as the big picture stuff, and can, you know, cumulatively lead to um, more substantive change um, down the track. Um, and I think people who who know, I mean, people know when their families have had an involvement in the in the sort of colonial frontier history. Um, 
who might be frightened about coming out about that, who, who are terrified, really, and guilty and feel awful. I think that truth-telling should create a space where people feel like they are able to to share information because we know that in terms of repatriation, there are a lot of our people, our ancestors' remains who are held in private collections. And so there's a way for truth-telling to offer really substantive um, progress on lots of different levels, things like repatriation as well as people feeling like they belong in their country more in a, in a deeper way. Um, you've got a Churchill Fellowship to go and look at the intersection or the connection between journalism and truth-telling. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where you're going, what you're doing, what you hope to discover? Um, so, so yes, you're right. The Churchill Fellowship is to look at uh, the relationship between the media and truth-telling processes in other countries where First Nations uh, truth-telling has taken place. And I wanted to look at well, not just First Nations truth-telling, but I wanted to look at a, a range of work that's been done recently to um, come to terms with some uncomfortable truths about people, places and institutions. So The Guardian, I mean, I work for The Guardian's Australian company, but The Guardian UK recently did a, a series called Cotton Capital, which explored the uh, origins of The Guardian as uh, being rooted in the cotton trade and slavery. So it has spent the last three years looking at its own origins and um, a series of uh, incredible reporting was done. They engaged the work of historians at Manchester University and the black historian David Olasoga to look at... uh, They managed to even drill down to find the families, the descendants of the enslaved people whom the, the money f- that to se- help set up The Guardian first enslaved. Wow. So they have gone and done a lot of work in terms of um, um, reporting on that, but also offering bursaries to the descendants of those people. So trying to make some meaningful reparations. I think I want to, I'm really keen to talk to those historians about how they did that work. Um, I'm keen to talk to uh, journalists in Ireland as well about how you report on division in the post-peace process island. So how, how, do, how do the Irish journalists now tackle that history? How do you write about that history now that there's this notional peace between North and South? Are those divisions still there? What are the, what are the thinking? What, is, what are the editorial decisions that are made about how you cover that residual conflict and how you now write about your history? Is it different now? So, and then I'll be looking hopefully at the Nordic countries where the Sami have just uh, completed a, a truth-telling process with um, the colonial governments across the Arctic Circle. So the Sami are similar to us in the sense that they have to deal with multiple governments across their country. So it's it's a similar situation for, for mob in Australia. So and I'm, I'm interested to hear from uh, First Nations journalists in that, in Sami journalists there, but also from mainstream reporters about how they, how they deal with the story. Because I just feel like the resonances from what I've what I've heard already are just it, it's almost a carbon copy of what we're going through here. It sounds so fascinating. You know, I'm going to make you come back and tell us all about <laughs> it when you get back. Um, we've talked about the really difficult, quite 
you know, powerful but very traumatic issues that you've looked at, massacres, child removal, etc. So I was very pleased that recently we went back out on country together. And I was wondering if you could just reflect what it means to you when you've been through a very difficult time, like you had such pressure with the covering the voice to parliament referendum. It was a frantic pace. You were on it every day. Um, covering the country and then able to get back. What does it mean for you to go back on country like that? It was like being able to breathe out again, wasn't it? I mean, you, you've also had a challenging year, and you you also have a have a, a role, a public role, and a and a career that has never shied away from you know tackling difficult subjects. So it was it was like breathing out, like ah, oh, you know. Out here, you know, the the sun comes up and goes down, the country is there and it's always going to be there and it's sustaining, right? Like it was just really nice to be out there. I was thinking about all our old people. I was thinking about how hard they fought for us to make us safe, to, to give us all these opportunities. It was really, it was just a really, it was the best thing to do. We had that lovely stop at Angledool. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that's so important for you? Well, Angledool is where our ancestors lived. So it's a, a tiny uh, spot on the road between Lightning Ridge and Hebel across the border into Queensland. It is where my grandmother was born. It's where her mother, her grandmother was born on Uwalari country on the Narran River. It's a mission, it was an Anglican mission, but it was always Uwalari country. And I remember uh, Granny Helen, who's our apical ancestor, um, my grandmother's grandmother, telling Kay Langlo Parker uh, the uh, uh, that she would she came into the mission because they were quote shooting all the blacks unquote. So how we ended up on on that mission was to fleeing from frontier violence back in the day. My grandmother was born there. Um, my uh, two of my uh, uncles were born there. So it feels like like home in a way. Like I go when we're there, I think about them and, and when they were little kids and there's we found photos in the archive of, of them and their siblings and just got a sense of what their life was like living there. It wasn't easy. Um, you know, that it was a really strict place, but it was country, like it was where it was home to them. Um, so it was, it's lovely to go back there when you walk up the hill to where the mission used to be, it's all gone now, but there's a memorial, a big rock, and it's got the names of all of our ancestors on it, including my granny and, you know, members of your family. And so I feel like when we go there, we are visiting them and it's, it was, it's just lovely to, to, to do that. I wish I could do it more often, but it's nice to know that that, that stone is there, thanks to old Uncle George Rose. He he um, he fought hard for that to be put there before he passed. I do love travelling on country with you because you've got that kind of, I don't know, it's probably not fair to call it a journalistic mind, but you are kind of like an encyclopaedia about where who lived there and what happened here and how these people are related to other people. <laughs> yeah, I... I I, I sat down with my aunties because I'm a real, yeah, journalist. So we're all real nosy kind, real sticky beaks. And so when I was younger, I sat down with all my aunties and I said, oh, well, how, who's relate, how are we related to this one and who goes here? And, and they, I literally sat on the floor with all the, we just had all these sheets of paper 
and they'd say, oh, well, this, you know, they had this, this married this one and they had these kids and then they'd go, oh, you're going to need another piece of paper. And go, <laughs> you're going to need another piece of paper. It just kept expanding. So, yeah, I think just that natural curiosity. And so I think about them, you know, they're really important in my life. They kind of, they... I think about them when I make big decisions or when I've got to do something that's a bit scary, you know, I, I kind of, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. My, my grandmother and my auntie Pat are often in my head. Um, I have to say the one thing that was a bit of a downer about travelling with you is because you've done so much work on the massacres <laughs> whenever we were on the river at Durambandi, you knew that history <laughs> as well. But that must be another layer of, of what you feel when you're on country. Yeah, it is because, you know, when you go across the along that Kalgoorlie River or the Ballon River, there are a lot of massacres along that area because it's open, pl- here I go again, open plains country. So mob couldn't hide from incursions by the, the, the colonials. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of uh, incidents in that in that open country of, of Queensland. And, and we know from David Marr's book, how brutal that was. And from Rachel Perkins's incredible series on the frontier wars too, how unrelenting that was. And our mobs really copped the full force of that. That's why it was so wonderful to be there for the native title meeting and there we were. Whatever people's criticisms is of native title as a title, um, that acknowledgement that that's our land was pretty powerful. It means so much, doesn't it? Like I I didn't think it it would, but it does. Like it just, and it makes you think of those ancestors and how, how powerful their spirits are that they are still here and that they, and, and they are still looking over that process, you know? So even, even as a symbolic thing, it, it, it's very meaningful to people, I reckon, yeah. Now, I just want to finish on picking up on one thing you mentioned as a throwaway line before, but I think it's really important and I want to dig into it a little bit. You said that you were hopeful even though you thought maybe you were being foolish by being hopeful, but I think it's important when you do the sort of work you are to continue to feel, I, I feel like you can't work in our area unless you're an optimist, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, I guess that's it. So I was just wondering from, from your perspective, when you look at the things that have influenced you, the things that make you strong, um, and you, your resilience has certainly been tested um, in recent times, where do you think that sense of optimism and hope still comes from? Considering you see through your journalism, so many things that are, have been really terrible and tragic. That sense of optimism and hope comes from the resilience of Aboriginal people. Like I just, I'm amazed every day at how how inspiring people are. Like you've got Honey Pat Turner on your show. She never takes a backward step. So why would any of us? Like no, I she's a force of nature. Yeah, isn't right. She? <laughs> so, and her her life growing up was really really much tougher than we ever had it. So you know, you just think that's where the hope comes from. I have faith in our people. That's, I guess if there's hope, it's that, it's that, it's faith in, in Aboriginal people that, that we won't give up because we never do and, and never have. And yeah, so I think you're right, in, in, to work in the media, you need to be an optimist, you need to be a bit of an idealist. I don't think they're bad things. I think blind hope is, is foolish, but I think if you, if you, you're always looking for, you're always looking for that crack in the in the clouds for the light you know like trying to find that one one area that will make a difference that will help change 
to help progress in some way. Well, that sounds really highfalutin. No, no, it doesn't. In fact, when you say that, it reminds me, we talk so much about you as a journalist and your profession, but you are a mum, you've got two kids. And when you talk about, you know, the, the, the impact you want to have with your work, it's about changing the future. Mm. Um, so, you know, obviously that that has a deeper meaning when you are mother to two children um, in terms of that what you're hoping that work will achieve because it's a legacy for them. So mm. my question is really, what is the Australia that you are hoping your children um, come into maturity in? And a more inclusive Australia that celebrates, not just recognises, but celebrates uh, its First Nations history. And I know these are just words and, and people say this sort of stuff all the time, but I genuinely, that's the world I want to live in. That's the world I want my kids and their kids to live in. Because I think that when we accept our First Nations past and present and the values and the the knowledge and experience that First Nations bring to this country, we will look after the country better. Um, so I think when we respect First Nations better, we will look after our country better. We will have a greater respect for this country that we all share. And that's the one thing all Australians have in common as we're all walking this same place. And and that should be our kind of our first responsibility is to looking after it. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us on speaking out as somebody being <laughs> interviewed rather than where you started, which was doing the interviewing. And it's, a, it's uh, can I say how weird it is? <laughs> I, li- I like to ask the questions, Larissa. <laughs> I I know that's how I feel too. It's like this epiphany where it's so much easier. Anyway, so it's very nice to follow in your footsteps, but it's also <laughs> nice to be able to um, highlight your work, your um, extraordinary career, and. Um, to look forward to what happens on this Churchill Fellowship. And uh, I'm taking that from what you said before as an um, acceptance of my offer to come back and talk about it when you return. <laughs> Thank you so much, Larissa. I mean, you, you you are so generous to your mob and this program is so important as a window uh, through which we can, we can talk to people. So I want to thank you for that too. That's Lorena Allen, one of Australia's most accomplished and respected First Nations journalists. Lorena is Indigenous editor at The Guardian Australia and has dedicated her career to sharing First Nations stories. Going south, took a dive, hit and missed on Friday night, fleeting Introduction from a friend Help me get to you in the end Fleetingly Fleetingly Little dance, a little song Hazy direction, we're moving on
That's the show for now. Join us again next time when we feature highlights from the Sydney Crime Writers Festival. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Barrett.